I want to read a couple verses from Psalm chapter 40 before we sing one more song. Psalm 40 verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. You know, we get together each week, uh, we sing praises to God, we, we, we listen to his word, but these verses in Psalms remind us that we can never reach the end of God. His works are more than can ever be told. And you know, we're gonna spend eternity proclaiming the works of God, and yet we will never reach the end of them. So uh, that's just some words of encouragement as we, as we sing this morning. Um, again, proclaim God's goodness and grace and love to us. related to next week. First of all, there will be a baptism. And if, if you are someone who has been thinking that they would like to be baptized, um, that's, that's really exciting. What I want you to do is talk to Steve right after the service. And at noon in his office, he's going to have a little uh, gathering information, um, time to, to talk together about baptism. Next week, there will also be a lunch after the 1030 service to talk about Haiti Ryan, anything we need to know special about that? If you plan on staying, let Ryan know so that they can adequately plan for food. And this is, again, a, a chance to find out information if you may be interested in, in going to Haiti later this fall, correct? Okay. And then finally, um, there is something, another little event going on next Sunday. If you are interested in uh, watching the Patriots win again, unfortunately, <laughs> you know what? Just get together. There's a uh, ch there's a gathering here at church around game time or a little before bring uh, whatever snacks or things you like to eat and uh, if the game's bad you can just hang out and uh, talk to your friends so uh, I think that's it I think I covered everything with that I'm going to invite Steve to come on up we will find out if Alan is prophetic uh, in the Old Testament in the Old Testament sense of the word uh, next week, so invite you to join me as we prepare to open God's Word as I pray. Would you pray with me, Father? I come this morning with a, a profound sense of walking into truths that are familiar, but yet oftentimes faint and distant in our personal experience of them. And so I pray, Father, in my own heart that you would continue the work that your spirit can do and does do and is doing. And I pray that you would do that in each of us here this morning, that we might gain insight from you that would be transformational in our own spiritual life. And I pray that you would, as the psalmist prayed, open our eyes, dear Father, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
About two years ago, I took a couple of different courses of antibiotics to treat an infection that I had, and my symptoms continued to get worse. And so the doctor decided that I needed a dose of stronger medicine, and so they prescribed, he prescribed a a course of really, really strong antibiotics, and I was taking the antibiotics, and I began to feel like I had influenza. I was completely lethargic. I was completely exhausted. I was listless and weak and ached all over, and I thought I was going to die. Well, the antibiotics were doing their work. They were killing the infection inside of my body at the same time I thought they were taking me out as well. Serious illness requires strong medicine. You know, if we have a surgery, we don't want to take aspirin to deal with the pain. If we have an appendicitis, a little bit of neosporin on the outside is really not going to take care of it. We need some serious, strong medicine for serious, strong illness. Every one of us has a very terminal condition, a terminal spiritual condition that requires strong medicine. Each one of us is born either actively rebelling and or passively indifferent towards God. And as a result of our rebellion, there are adverse consequences, the worst of which is that we're going to be separated from God for eternity. And the author of Hebrews has been repeatedly and now finally gives his last shot at convincing us that the only medicine strong enough to deal with the terminal condition of our sin is the death of Christ on our behalf. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 18, where we see that the sin as the spiritual cancer that is causing our death ruins our lives and results in death. We, we like to self-medicate or else deny. So we either deny it or engage in self-medication when it comes to our sin. Well, I really don't have a problem. I'm really not all that bad. There's a lot of people that are worse than me, and that's why we rationalize it. Or else we try to medicate by making more money. If I make more money, then I'll somehow alleviate the adverse effects of the emptiness in my heart. Or we like to spend money. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. Or we indulge in personal pleasures. Sometimes it's food. Sometimes it's more crass stuff, uh, pornography. Other times it's shopping. Sometimes it's social media. Other times it's a sports addiction or whatever it might be. But we're trying to medicate the ache in our soul. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, there's only one medicine strong enough for what ails you. This is my last attempt in the book of Hebrews to give it to you. And it's in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. I'll read the text and then 
Hopefully we'll begin to unpack the three reasons why Christ's death is the only final and sufficient solution to our sin problem. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, and I will write them. Then he he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Three reasons that I see in the text why Jesus' death is the final and sufficient sacrifice for our sinful condition. And the first one is this, that Christ's death accomplished God's will for us. In verses 1 through 10, We see his will accomplished, but it's interesting how the author sets up this reason. He contrasts two things, the law and Christ's death. Two contrasting truths. First of all, the deficiencies of the old covenant are mentioned in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, he says, he begins with this word, for, and the word for links us back to what we've seen in verses 1 through 28. And then he continues to perpetuate that argument that he started back in verses 1 through 28 and launches to further explanation how one sacrifice of Christ is superior to all the other sacrifices in the Old Testament. The old sacrifices, there's two major inadequacies he brings out in the law. First of all, the Old Testament sacrifices could never bring us to God. Notice it says in in verse 1 that they could never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. What does he mean by make perfect? He's not talking about sinless perfection. 
Make perfect, actually the the word literally means to bring to the intended end. And the end that he's intending here is a relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. A clear relationship with Him. The repeated animal sacrifices are inadequate to put a person in a position whereby they can be restored into right relationship with God because those inadequate sacrifices do what? They never take away the person's sin. And the sin is what stands between us and our relationship with God. And because they can never take away the sins, they can never restore us or eliminate what stands in our way. I was trying to think, how, how could I picture this in my mind? Well, the only thing that came to my mind, I'm not sure it's the best thing, but the only thing that came to my mind is, what if, what if I had a, a relative my, uh, that was in prison? And the only way I could have a relationship with this person was through writing letters, or I could visit them in the prison, but then I've been to prisons and visited people in prison, and here's the deal. You sit or stand, and there's a glass between you, and at best, you can talk through a phone. Now, sometimes they have different ways of doing it, but let's just say that that was the case. So, what kind of a relationship do I have with my relative because I'm writing letters and I'm talking to them through a phone and a glass separates us? What is it that separates us from that personal closeness of a relationship? The walls of the prison keep me from intimacy with that person. Under the Old Testament law, the sacrifices brought the worshipers in contact with God's shadow. It says it's a shadow. The Old Testament sacrifices are a shadow. They bring us into some veiled understanding, some clouded view, some clouded relationship with God. I remember when our children were younger and we'd be walking together on a sunny day. And the sun at our side and then we'd see our shadows. And so we played this little game. And we talked to each other's shadows. And we'd make, you know, signs with our hands and, and look at the shadows, you know. And then we'd try to step on each other's shadow. And you see what kind of a relationship you have with a shadow as opposed to with the real person. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were perpetually offered time and time and time again would provide a shadow relationship. They would provide a prison wall between us relationship with us and God. They could never fully restore us into a perfect relationship. No, it couldn't do it. To worship God under the Old Covenant would be to interact with God in the same way that you would interact with a shadow. It'd be dull. It'd be just not quite satisfying it'd be actually kind of lonely under the law the glorious privileges and the grandness of being in an intimate relationship with God is just not possible so that's the first deficiency secondly the old testament sacrifices could never forgive our sins at the end of verse one he said they could never make perfect those who draw near they're offered continually they could never make perfect those who draw near they offered continually They'd never been able to bring about the forgiveness that would remove the obstacle of our relationship. They would never cease to be offered. Uh, Now, and then verse 2, he says, Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? If they were able to accomplish what they had intended, would they not cease to have been offered? And the answer would be, well, of course. If it was accomplished, if what the sacrifice was intended to accomplish was accomplished then you wouldn't have to keep offering the sacrifices over and over and over and over again 
And then he goes on to say that the sacrifices offered are a reminder of our sins year by year by year. Now he's talking about the Day of Atonement. That one day in which they came and their sins were atoned. When I was a freshman in college, I had a roommate. And my roommate, the freshman year in college, I had two roommates actually. My one roommate, freshman year in college, decided that he was going to save the world's water supply. And so he refused to take a shower. And he refused to wash his laundry. And this went on for weeks. Uh, you know, three teenage boys in the same room. And one of them is not showering or washing laundry. For weeks, our room stunk like you could only imagine that it would stink. Finally, 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 we convinced him. I don't know why I didn't just take his stuff and throw it out in the hall. But uh, I was trying, you know, and just, but we, he, he washed his stuff. And washing, you see here, we get dirty and our bodies and our clothes get filthy. And when we wash, it's a reminder that we need to be cleaned and that it is a perpetual thing. Sacrifices in the Old Testament only reminded the people that their sins were a stain that needed to be washed and cleansed time after time after time, again and again and again must wash off often. And the reason for the repeated sacrifices is given in verse 4. He says, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. In stark contrast to the deficiencies of the law is the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice in verses 5 through 10. And there's two ways that the text tells us that his sacrifice is superior to those sacrifices in the law. First of all, Christ's sacrifice fulfilled God's sovereign will. You see, in verses 5 through 10, the author tries to convince the readers then and now that the animal sacrifices are happening no longer. Not because they were so good, but because they are so bad. And, or, or just, I'm sorry. Please, I want to correct that. Not that they were bad. They were just inadequate. Okay? They're just inadequate. But Christ's sacrifice is final. It's done. It's, it's, it's finished. What's interesting is that the text of verses 5 through 8 in Hebrews chapter 10 is a, is a quote. These are a quote from Psalm 40. Okay? Verses 6 through 8. And they reflect God's desire. And affirm what is taught elsewhere in Scripture, that what God desires is not our sacrifices. What they were tempted to do was to think that the sacrifices, that's what God was honored by. No, what God's honored by is a heart that is obedient to Him, and out of that obedience offers the sacrifices. There's a big difference. We don't worship the sacrifice, that's not the object of, of affection. The object of affection is God. And out of our response to him, we offer our sacrifice. And so here's what happened. It's that he, he, he wanted, unless a sacrifice was offered from obedient faith, God was not pleased with it. Now you could look at 1 Samuel 15 or Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, and see the same thing. Psalm 40 was written by David. And David's initial commitment to obedient faith, because that's what David realized. He realized that God doesn't want me to just offer these sacrifices willy-nilly. 
He wants my heart. That's why he expressed it in Psalm 40. And David's initial commitment to obedient faith, expressed here, is realized ultimately in the Son. Notice it says in verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he is David's son, Jesus. He says... So these words are prophetically applied to the Son, Jesus, who says it of himself. I am here to act in obedient faith, and my sacrifice is in obedient faith to God. It's not just, don't, I'm not just throwing up sacrifices. Out of obedient faith, I'm offering myself up to God. It's applied to him at the time of his incarnation. Note it says in the text, when he comes into the world. But a body you have prepared for, verse 5, for who? For me. God prepared a body for his son Jesus, David's lineage son. Why? So he could do his will. That was his sacrifice of obedient faith, was to do the Father's will. It refers to the earthly body in which he perfectly demonstrated the sacrifice of obedient faith that the Father desires. Look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the law, roll of the book of the law is written of me to do your will, O God. I like what F.F. F. Bruce says. He, said, he put it this way. His incarnation itself is viewed as an act of submission to God's will. And as such, an anticipation of his supreme submission to that will in his death. So that when Jesus applies these words to himself, he's saying what God desires is a sacrifice of obedient faith. And he's given me a body in which I will offer a sacrifice of obedient faith. Myself. In my death. In submission to God's will. Amazingly, we see this other places in Scripture. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was he praying? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And what was God's will? God's will was done. He was submitting to the Father's will. And the Father's will is seen in the sacrifice of his Son in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He became obedient to death... Even death on a cross. Hebrews chapter 5, 8. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Christ offered himself as the sacrifice of obedient faith when he gave his body on the cross. This was God's expressed will for him. In the, it says, he would, his, your, his will, and then he says... It's written in the roll of the book of the law. I like that in verse 7. The roll of the book of, uh, it is written. In the roll of the book it is written. What is he talking about here? The roll of the book of the law is the scripture. So when the scripture speaks of the Messiah's death, it speaks about Jesus. That's what he's saying. It speaks about me. And then verse 9 then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Christ's obedience of faith obliterated the old covenant and inaugurated the new. He brought a better way. Verse 10, By this will. Now whose will? By God's will. 
By God's will what? By God's will he offered himself up once as a sacrifice. That's verse 10. Through the offering of the body, the body of Jesus once for all. That was the Father's will that Jesus would sanctify us by the offering up of his Son. And what does he mean to sanctify? To set us apart to serve and worship God. Notice verse 10 says this, but by this will we have been sanctified. It's a particular use of the grammar, is a perfect tense, which means action of the past which continues into the future. Okay? It indicates in the strongest way that the believer, the person who trusts in Jesus' death as a sacrifice of sin for their sins, has continuing and permanent salvation. In God's eyes, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. It's an accomplished fact. We are positionally holy before God if we're trusting in Christ's sacrifice as the payment for our sins. We are in a position. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. In him we have been made complete. The reality is, though, we don't always live out the fullness of our position so that practically we're not always that holy. Okay. What he's saying here is, it doesn't matter. Doesn't, it's not an excuse for sin, but what he's saying is it doesn't really matter what your practice is. Your position is you are a child of God. When our children were born to us, they were our offspring regardless of how they act. Sometimes how they act doesn't seem to reflect their being our offspring, at least I hope. Uh, hopefully more and more and more it does. But a child, we are God's children. And so he did a second area in, or reason why Christ's sacrifice is superior is that Christ's death arrested the need for any other sacrifice. This is verses 11 through 4. And there are four ways that he arrested the need for future sacrifices. First of all, his sacrifice cleansed us from sin, verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Notice now the contrast between the numerous, perpetual, and ineffective sacrifices, verse 11, with the singular and final and perfect sacrifice of Jesus, verse 12. But, that's the contrast, verse 11, verse 12. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, did what? Sat down. What were the priests doing? Look at verse 11. Standing. It says that in the, word, in the text. They were standing. In the text, he, after offering one sacrifice, sat down. It's important that he sat down. Christ accomplished in one sacrifice for sins for all time what the repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament could never do. One sacrifice to cleanse us for all time. Secondly, his sacrifice concluded all sacrifice. When he sat down, it declares that, hey, my job's done. 
My sacrificial job is done. There's no more to do. It's over. Jesus finished the job. It's completed, never to be repeated. He's never going to offer himself again. There's never going to be another sacrifice for sin. Finality and sufficiency of Christ's death as the only means or path to the permanent forgiveness is something that the author of Hebrews has been hitting on. It's a drum that he's been beating all the way through the text. Chapter 1, verse 3. In chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. Chapter 9, verses 12 through 14. Now, why do you think he keep, keeps on beating the drum? Had there been compliance and acceptance, there would have been silence. But the warning and the call that went unheeded meant that the instruction was repeated. There's a reason that I perpetually admonish my family to shut off the lights when you leave the room and shut the door behind you when you go out, you go out. If you open it, close it. If you turn it on, turn it off. Why do I keep saying that? If there's compliance, there will be silence. But when the admonishment goes unheeded, the call is repeated. Folks, the people in Hebrews are no different than us. They just couldn't quite grasp that Christ's sacrifice was enough. Oh, yeah, well, I know it's enough, but I got to help him out a little bit. So I got to go and offer this sacrifice. I got to do this. So I got to go to church. I got to put an offering in the plate. I got to serve so many hours at the church. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to help out here. I got to do this. I got to pray so many hours a day, or I'm somehow deficient in God's eyes. No. Jesus concluded it all. Only Christ's sacrifice, only his sacrifice, only his sacrifice is sufficient to, to satisfy God's wrath against my greed. Against my selfishness. Against my unwillingness to forgive those who've sinned against me. Against my pettiness, against my manipulation, against my, you put in the, fill in the blank. And sin is pretty subtle, you know. We say, well, yeah, you know, I really, I haven't really had any bad thoughts, but I'm pretty much waiting for everybody to pat me on the back and applause me, and I really don't care if I encourage them so much. That's sin. Sin is so subtle. And Christ's sacrifice paid for it all, completed it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. His sin conquers our enemies, verse 13. 
When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father because he rose from the dead after satisfying God's wrath by the punishment that was poured out upon him on the cross, he sat down and now he's just waiting to come back. The enemies that he defeated, he will one day dethrone. His enemies and our enemies. And he's just waiting. Why? Why is he waiting? Prolonged waiting so that all those that God has to be called into his family will be called into his family before Christ comes back. It's his mercy. And makes him patient. Finally, his sacrifice completes our restoration. What verse 1 says, that the, the offering of these sacrifices, continually offering them over and over and over, could not make us perfect, verse 14 concludes, God, through his son Jesus, completed the job. Four introduces the reason he sat down. The reason he sat down was because he made possible that restoration, that we would be perfected for all time. That's the job's permanently restored us into relationship with himself, that all those who are set apart to serve and worship God, the sanctified, this is verse 14, into relationship with himself. He perfected it. He made it for all time. It's done. That means those of us who trust Christ are forever forgiven. Saved eternally. We are secure. Brought into a relationship with God. Verse 14 says what? For all time. For all time. Eternal life does not begin when we die. It begins the moment we trust Christ. For all time. We're saved. In 1993, I bought a 1991 Honda Accord with 36,000 miles on it. Last year, I sold that Honda Accord with 295,000 miles on it. After I bought the car, we had to replace the muffler. I bought the muffler at the local shop, and we got a warranty, a muffler warranty. As long as you own the car, uh, they'll replace the muffler for free. How many mufflers can you go through in 295,000 miles? A lot of mufflers. A lot of mufflers. See, they know that average person holds on to their car for two or three years, so most people are never going to use the warranty. Uh Uh-uh, not me. And I'm not even Dutch. So I held on to the car. That muffler guarantee was good as long as we owned the car. God's redemption guarantee is good for eternity. It's good for eternity. We are his children, safe and secure in the arms of Jesus forever, forever, forever. No more sacrifice for sin. There's one final reason why Christ's sacrifice is superior because it achieved forgiveness as God had promised in the new covenant. And this is verses 15 through 18. In verse 15, the text says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Three aspects of the Spirit's witness in the Scripture confirms the permanence of our forgiveness. The permanence of our forgiveness. First, the significance of the Spirit's testimony. Notice that it says that the Spirit bears witness. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. Well, if you looked up Jeremiah 31 33... 
Jeremiah 31, 33 says this is God's witness. So in Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, God says this. Well, Jeremiah wrote it, but God spoke it to Jeremiah. And now here it says that it's the Spirit's witness. Well, what is it? Yes. It's a confirmation that what God spoke through the Holy Spirit, through Jeremiah, is now being fulfilled in its prophetic witness through the Son, Jesus Christ. In his death for us. Confirmation that the Holy Spirit's words come from divine authority. Not to be doubted. Not to be denied. Not to be dismissed. Secondly, the substance of the Spirit's testimony. What is it that the Spirit gave testimony to? That Christ's sacrifice inaugurated the new covenant. Brought the Spirit inspired promise of Jeremiah. See, Christ's sacrifice that inaugurated the new covenant brought the Spirit-inspired promise of Jeremiah 31 to fulfillment. The Spirit-inspired witness brought the promise to fulfillment and provided permanent pardon. How do I get that? Well, look at verse 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's permanent pardon. Never remembered anymore. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, God doesn't forget them. I mean, God's not, you know, he's omniscient, right? But he looks at us who are trusting Christ through the blood of Christ so that he doesn't see the sin that would cause our condemnation. It's permanent pardon. And then finally, the summary of the Spirit's testimony is in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness. Forgiveness of these things. What things? Verse 17. Sins and lawless deeds. There's the forgiveness of our sins and lawless deeds. How? Through the offering of sacrifice of Christ once for all, sins for all time. That's how our sins are forgiven. Our trust in what Christ did. Now what does it mean to be forgiven? Um, it's a debt that's paid. I remember when Marlon and I paid off our student loans. Oh, glorious day. You know? Oh, glorious day. The obligation was gone. We were no longer under, you know, as I think it's uh, Dave Ramsey says, the debt is the slavery of the free. You know, we're no longer enslaved to our our debt. That's the glorious thing about forgiveness is that through the one sacrifice of Christ for all time, the debt for our sin has been paid. And we're no longer under obligation to it. There is no longer any offering for sin. We're freed from the delusion or the Confusion that somehow we can work hard enough to erase it ourselves. No. Don't give those sacrifices that you think are going to please God unless they're out of obedient faith. You come to church, you put offering money in the offering plate, you serve in the church, and you uh, do mission work, and you do all these things. Why? Because that's how I have to please God. No. Because I am pleased with God. 
Because it's a heart of response of love for what God has done for me. I can't pay him back at all. There's no thing I could do. No, we're freed. Our forgiveness is only through faith in Christ's sacrifice for our sins. The author provides us three reasons why Christ's sacrifice is superior. He accomplished God's will for us that he would bring us into restored relationship with himself. He arrested the need for future sacrifices. He sat down. It's done. Now, if, he, if Jesus sat down, I don't think, well, I should be running around like crazy man trying to earn my salvation. He did it. It's done. And finally, he achieved forgiveness in the new cause. Every one of us who accepts Christ's death as the payment for our sins by faith has been cleansed for eternity has conquered our enemies, is completely restored into relationship with God for eternity. And so there's, there's some things we could do. This, here's the, my shot at what you can do in response to what God has said that our sins are forgiven. First of all, if you're here this morning and you're still either indifferent to God, rebelling against God, or trying to earn your way to God, my invitation to you is just to receive the gift of salvation that God has made possible to you through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. That your debt has been paid. You just need to cash it in. You just need to accept by faith what God has done. You need to admit that you're a sinful person in rebellion against God. You need to admit that you deserve God's wrath and judgment. This is not all about ushy-gushy, feely-goody, I'm so good that God wants me. No, it's about how crummy I am and God in his mercy would accept me. And then you just need to confess your sin and turn and accept and say, Lord, I accept what you did in dying on the cross as the payment I deserve. Thank you so much. If you've never done that, then you don't know what it is to be free from your debt. And you're going to be running from pillar to post all your life trying to fill a God-sized hole in your gut that will never be filled by no matter how much you try to self-medicate. And as we said in the first service, then the name of Jesus will be an offense to you rather than the sweetest name above all names. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then my encouragement to you is to, to rest. I know there's some song, I can't think of it because I'm musically challenged, but you know, just rest. You know, just rest. In the arms of Jesus, just rest. Just rest. No more frenetic, fanatic flurrying around trying to make my way to God. <sighs> okay, Lord. Now, this is not an excuse to live like you want. You are positionally holy. God expects you to be practically holy and us to be moving in directions that are that way. This is not a license to sin. But it is a license to rest in the goodness that God has provided for us. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Then rejoice. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. And then you know what? Let's don't keep it to ourselves. I mean, if it's really that good, then I should be wanting other people to get in on the action, right? That is the difference between Christianity and other major world religions who want to keep it for themselves and we're on the outside looking in, they think. No, no. We want them to have this Jesus that we have too. 
The Old Testament sacrifices offered year by year by year were what? A reminder of their sins. As we come to take bread and break it and drink this cup as a reminder of what Jesus did for us, guess what? It's a reminder of what he did for us and that our sins are remembered no more. What a contrast. Sacrifices year by year remind us of our sin. The bread and the cup, week by week, a reminder of what Christ has done for us and that our sins are remembered. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just invite you to take a few moments as our praise team comes and plays to just search your heart. And if there is some in your, in your life that would separate you from God, just confess it before the Lord. Get your heart right. And then with joy and with rest, come and break this bread and drink this cup as a remembrance that your sins are remembered no more. They've been nailed to the cross, and you bear them no more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the writer of Hebrews, the Spirit of God who inspired him to write these things, that we might finally and fully accept the sufficiency of Christ as the strong medicine, the only strong medicine that's able to cure and combat our spiritual sickness of sin. And I pray that as we take these elements, that you would receive from us joy and receive from us worship. And if anyone here does not know you, I pray they'd get their heart right with you before they ever take these elements. And that they would come to you and know you first and foremost. We pray it in Jesus' name.